Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. You might have noticed that after 75 episodes, we've declared this to be season two, and my amazing design team has given us a brand new look. If you like it, message me or at Chainalysis on X. I'd love to hear your feedback. Now, on to the first episode of season two. Bitcoin mining has fascinated me since I got into the crypto space. The idea that you can make money just by running some software on your computer was at first hard to believe and then amazing. In this episode, I'm joined by one of Cointelegraph's 15 most influential entrepreneurs in Web3, Jamie Leverton. She's the CEO of Bitcoin miner Hut8. I had the fortune to get seated across from Jamie at dinner earlier this year, and I've been hoping to have her join a public key episode ever since. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, from the economics of mining Bitcoin to Hut8's M&A activity and their data center workload diversification via support for growing artificial intelligence workloads. And of course, we cover the real story behind environmental impact of mining operations. Hint, it's not as bad as you think. Last thing before we get to my conversation with Jamie, my team's been working on the Global Crypto Adoption Report, and this week we just released the section covering the Middle East and North Africa. Inside, we include a special focus on the UAE's efforts on regulatory policy, where they're promoting safe and responsible adoption of digital assets. A link to the blog is included in the show notes. Today, I'm joined by Jamie Leverton, who is CEO at Hut8. Jamie, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. We have been planning this, I think, for over eight months. So it holds the record as the longest in the works public key episode. I don't know about the audience, but I've got a ton of anticipation. You are famous, I think, in crypto circles. You're one of Cointelegraph's 15 most influential entrepreneurs in Web3. And you run a publicly traded cryptocurrency firm, which is a rare, rare thing. Tell us a little bit about HUD8 for people that aren't familiar. Sure, happy to. So HUD8 uh, is one of the oldest publicly traded Bitcoin miners. We started as a pure uh, self-mining Bitcoin company. We went public initially on the Toronto Venture Exchange in 2018. Uh, We're headquartered in Canada. All of our operations today are in Canada as well. Uh, And then we moved up to the Toronto Stock Exchange proper in 2020. And then we're the first Canadian company in our space to dual list onto the NASDAQ, uh, which we did in the spring of 21. Since I took over the company, which is coming up on three years now. We've diversified the business model quite a bit. So we still do self-mining of Bitcoin, but at the end of January 2022, we closed on the transaction to purchase five traditional data centers across Canada, two in Toronto, two in Vancouver, and one in northern BC and Kelowna. So those are five data centers that do traditional types of workloads, co-location, cloud, managed services. Obviously, uh, there's a lot going on in that space right now with the boom in AI compute demand we're seeing. So within the realm of Bitcoin miners, we're unique in that we are fully diversified between traditional data center compute and Bitcoin mining compute. And the other thing that makes us stand out from our peers is we're actually the first public company to start holding Bitcoin on balance sheet, which we did really from inception back going back to 2018. We'll definitely dive into Bitcoin on balance sheet. We've had a number of folks who kind of specialize in the accounting and and some of the legal technicalities of dealing with that. I'd love the CEO perspective, but maybe we can start at the beginning because I think you and I have kind of a shared enterprise IT background prior to crypto. Like you're a relatively recent joiner to the space. Talk about your career that led you into the world of cryptocurrency. I'm always fascinated by the origin stories here. Yeah, I mean, it's a long story. 
I'll try to keep it as net as possible. I started my career in trad tech back in 2000. I did my MBA at Dalhousie University on the East Coast of Canada with a concentration in marketing informatics, which was really kind of the precursor to what we would, we would now consider big data or business intelligence. And because that program was so unique, uh, IBM recruited myself and, and one other from that program and moved me from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Toronto. Um, I'm actually from a small town about two and a half hours east of Toronto. So that was me coming to the big city for the first time in the spring of 2000. And I started working for IBM. I spent the first 10 years of my career working, working at IBM in a variety of different roles, quite a bit of it spent in the media and entertainment sector, doing a lot with emerging technologies in that space. And then I ultimately made the decision to leave IBM at the end of 2009. And that really kind of kicked off the second half of my career journey, where I've worked for a number of companies, all Canadian owned and operated, really focusing on more transformation type of mandates. So going into business units or companies that are struggling with something and really driving or attempting to drive um, a fix of the business unit or the problem or grow it out in a significant way. So over the course of the 10 years, kind of from me leaving IBM to me ultimately taking over at HUD-8, I had the opportunity to work for companies like BlackBerry, Bell Canada, National Bank, uh, Kojiko Pier 1. A lot of it spent on the infrastructure side. So the majority of my career has been in and around the data center world. And so when I when I got the call to look at this opportunity with HUD-8, ultimately what a Bitcoin mine really is, is an industrial scale stripped down data center. So it's a technology I really understand. I understand the operations, the vendors, kind of how the whole system works, albeit they're completely different from a, a security and a redundancy perspective, how you build a Bitcoin mining data center versus a traditional data center. But because I understood the, the motion and the operations, and I I had gone down the rabbit hole with respect to Bitcoin in the 2017-18 run. So it was, I was already a big believer in the space. I had looked at other opportunities to come into the space, but ultimately didn't find the right fit uh, until it was the opportunity to take over HUT, which I did in December of 2020. Wow. When you first saw crypto back in 2017, like what drew you into it? What appealed? And also maybe the other side of that, like what scared you a little bit since you didn't immediately <laughs> jump into the industry professionally? at least at that time. So a couple things happened. I, I spent some time working within one of Canada's large banks in their capital markets division and really had the opportunity to see how capital markets was functioning from the inside. I, I had the opportunity to go kind of across the capital markets business and understand how they were interacting with each other, with customers, within the broader industry. And it really felt like an industry that was ripe for some sort of disruption. It, was, it appeared to me to be behaving the same way it had behaved for decades. I went proactively searching for what could be that disruptor for the finance industry and ultimately found Bitcoin. But it was still early. It was still speculative. There were a lot of bad actors in the space. There was a lot of drama. Um, so I just kind of paid attention to it from a peripheral perspective. Uh, at that time, 17-18 run, I was working for Canada and Asia Pacific for Kojiko Pier 1, which is a traditional data center company. And almost overnight, we saw this overwhelming 
overwhelming demand come in from a completely new segment of customers. And really what, what they were, were Bitcoin miners looking for anywhere to plug in servers. And they were willing to come into traditional data center environments, despite the fact that they were paying arguably like retail rates for co-location, but they were so desperate to get somewhere to plug these miners in that they were willing to come into, as I say, traditional spaces. Now there's a whole, there are a whole lot of problems that get introduced when you actually try to mix ASIC-based computing in a traditional data center environment. And the industry learned those the hard way in that 17-18 run. And then ultimately, because the economics didn't hold, most of those Bitcoin miners that came into a traditional data center environment quickly went under when the economics turned against them as, as that bear came around quite quickly in, in 18. But through that process, I learned about mining and got just really, really interested in ultimately the promise of this technology to initially, for me, it was about banking the unbanked. It was about really bringing bringing something completely different to every world without borders, without centralization. And then, you know, I think for many of us, once you go down that rabbit hole, that fire sparks within you, it's really, really hard not to eventually make your way into this space. That's right. It's hard to go back once you've seen it. You bring up a point that I would love your perspective on, which is as an outsider to the mining industry, it seems like it's a boom and bust market mixed with geopolitics, right? So when I was coming into the industry two and a half, almost three years ago, everybody was getting kicked out of China, where right. it seemed like at least 50% of the mining activity had migrated to, I think, driven off of cheap power. And suddenly China said, no more, everybody's out. And then we've kind of seen over the last year with the downturn in asset prices, it seems like a lot of people were turning off their rigs or were actually going outright bankrupt and having kind of asset sales. What is the economics around the mining industry? Like, how does this work? How do you manage to successfully run a publicly traded company in, in that context? It seems like it would be really challenging. You are not wrong. It is very, very <laughs> challenging. Um, and we do, we do see cycles in crypto. I think the Bitcoin cycle historically is, is quite predictable. It all kind of centers around the halving. Generally, we have seen the halving creates a, a bit of a supply shock because the amount of block rewards available to miners drops by 50% every four years. And that kind of, that shock to the industry ultimately tends to trigger a new bull cycle. So a, a new cycle of price appreciation for Bitcoin, which generally generally happens about six months after the halving. So initially that shock causes really challenging economics for miners because obviously your the amount of revenue you can generate drops by 50%. But what we see in, in the network, based on how the network is designed, the most inefficient miners tend to also shut off immediately following the halving because they just can't afford to run. So the, the network is always dynamically self-adjusting based on where the economics are. And so really the strategy going into any halving event is to make sure you're in the top 50% as far as the efficiency curve so that you can continue to mine even after the halving reward drops by half. But really, you're, the industry is optimistically waiting for that next cycle of price appreciation for Bitcoin, which is where all of the economics turn in a Bitcoin miner's favor in that window. But my perspective, and actually I'll take a step back, we did see a lot of pain in the industry last year across crypto, but that miners were not immune to that. Much of it had to do with leverage. So 
the miners that got into the worst trouble and the bankruptcies that we saw in the space were really driven off of having too much debt that they couldn't service when mining economics turned suddenly and more negatively than anyone expected. We did have the perfect storm of events last year between an energy crisis, which drove up our number one operating expense as a miner is energy. So prices skyrocketed, Bitcoin price turned earlier than people expected. It didn't hit the all-time highs that people were expecting, and it dipped lower than people were expecting. So that obviously has a dramatic impact on our economics. And then the third factor, which really nobody expected, was the network hash rate continued to hit all-time highs. And we're, we're seeing that, that momentum also flow into 2023. So our economics are the most challenged, perhaps, that they've ever been since Bitcoin mining really started back in, in 08, 09. And so from my perspective, one of the things we've uh, been very, very focused on since I took over was taking on as little leverage as possible, really having a, a balance sheet first approach to, to the business so that you've got some insulation from these, these cycles that can be difficult to predict. And then the other thing is really looking at a diversified business model, as I talked about. So one of the reasons that we went into the traditional data center space was so that we would have a mix of fiat-based income streams, as well as the self-money, which ultimately generates Bitcoin as the output. From my perspective, those are the two most important things you can do to, to manage the cycles is, is a diversified business model that gives you fiat-based income streams that aren't directly related to the to Bitcoin mining economics and cycles, uh, and to make sure your balance sheet is robust. So again, I mentioned we've been keeping Bitcoin on balance sheet since inception. We now have over 9,000 Bitcoin on our balance sheet, and that gives us a lot of optionality throughout, throughout market conditions. What's the strategy with Bitcoin on the balance sheet? Like, are you holding forever, as some of the folks in the community might, might claim to be, or is there a more active trading strategy behind that? This is something we're constantly looking at. I have no intention to sell down our Bitcoin stack at present. We are selling monthly production to fund operations as we're going through a merger, which I'm very, very hopeful will ultimately get final uh, shareholder and regulatory approvals in the next few weeks. And I'm happy to talk a little bit about what that will look like and, and what HUD8 will be on the other side, uh, assuming that transaction is ultimately approved um, and successful. So our view in the bull market, one of the the things we were doing with the stack of Bitcoin that we had on our balance sheet was actually putting it to work. So we had strategic relationships with both Galaxy and Genesis, and we were using a portion of our Bitcoin stack to generate a fiat-based uh, yield. Now, ultimately, when market conditions turned and there was a lot of pain and noise in, in the industry, we pulled that back so, so that all of our Bitcoin would be custodied and, and wouldn't have any direct market exposure. But then over the past nine months, as we, as we really wanted wanted to be able to enter into the right types of growth opportunities, including the merger we're working through with USBTC. Having that much Bitcoin on balance sheet gives us a lot of optionality to, to grow the business because ultimately it serves as a great currency to put towards growth. We did announce about six weeks ago or so a credit facility with Coinbase. So it's a $50 million US credit facility where we're using a portion of our Bitcoin to secure that facility. Coinbase is one of our custodians as well. So it's a very elegant way to access non-dilutive capital at competitive rates to allow for us to continue to, to fund and, and grow the business. So that Bitcoin on balance sheet gives us a lot of optionality, more security and downside protection for cycles. And over time, I believe as we get more regulatory clarity and more sophisticated counterparties coming into the space, I think there will be 
an even greater opportunity for us to really put that stack to work in an increasingly meaningful way. And, and that is my intention going forward. That's exciting. I mean, it's such a diversified business. Talk about what's going on with the merger. I think this is a pretty exciting development for, for HUT. I couldn't be more pleased. So we we were vocal with our intention to continue looking for inorganic growth opportunities. The first one being the transaction that we closed to buy the Terrago data center assets at the end of January 22. And then we continue to look for the right opportunity to grow further. And really, I think one of the most important things that I was looking for in a, in a strategic partnership like this was, I think cultural fit is, in, is incredibly important. Important. The, the US BTC team, really great group of entrepreneurs, young, positive, hungry. They had also been able to capitalize on some amazing growth opportunities during the bear market and really grow their business out in a, in a meaningful way. I was looking for an opportunity to get geographic diversification. As I mentioned, we're entirely Canadian based from an operational perspective, and US BTC is entirely US based. So their assets are in Texas. Um, Nebraska and Niagara Falls, and then their corporate team is based in Miami. So very synergistic. There's really no overlap as far as uh, where we're positioned on the map. And they had also embarked on a diversified approach. So they they have three primary business lines. They do self-mining of Bitcoin. They also do hosting. And then they built out a, out a category called managed infrastructure operations, where they take their team and their purpose-built in-house software, and they actually go to other people's sites and manage Bitcoin mining operations for them. And so that that really provides two product lines that are fiat-based cash flows, one that's Bitcoin-based in the prop mining, and different levels of capital intensity. So self-mining of Bitcoin is the most capital intensive in that you have to build and pay for all of the infrastructure as well as the miners themselves. The hosting side of the business, much less capital intensive in that you only have to put capital towards the infrastructure and the clients you're hosting bring the miners. And then with respect to the managed infrastructure operations, really no capital intensity, it's software and labor. So that gives us, when we think about ultimately, if we're successful in the merger, these businesses coming together, we have three different primary fiat-based revenue lines. In addition to the repair center, we also uh, have a repair business where we repair third parties, mining equipment, and there's a fiat-based uh, revenue component to that. Uh, and then we've got obviously the self-money side of our business So and my data center business. So as these things all come together, it allows us to be very opportunistic in when and how we deploy capital based on what we're seeing in the markets in which we participate. Obviously, one of the things we we would like to be able to avoid and, and are lucky that, that we historically have been, you don't want to be deploying capital into mining equipment in the peak bull market. We saw a lot of people in the last cycle deploying significant amounts of capital into machines that were trading at you know, $100 north of $100 per terahash when the real market price is, is more like high teens, low 20s for that equipment. So having the optionality to allow us to flex in and out of segments based on where we think the right deployment of capital exists or makes the most sense is one of the things I really, really like about our business and is incredibly differentiated from anyone else in the space. 
the strategy makes a ton of sense. One of the things that's interesting, I'm curious your perspective, because you sit on both the GPU, kind of like a purview into the world of artificial intelligence and into crypto. And it feels like we're in a similar cycle to what you just mentioned about the overpriced, overheated market when it comes to GPUs right now. I had a conversation with somebody the other day that said they were doing kind of a, an M&A type activity and the value being placed on the GPUs that the to be acquired company company had was greater than the enterprise book value of the entire company. And so GPUs are a hot thing to get right now. Are you seeing that in your business as well? Like access to NVIDIA chips just being challenged? Or is this driving demand for you because you, you had a stockpile ready to go in advance? Well, right now, the biggest demand is for a specific card NVIDIA manufacturers called the H100. And so that is, that's absolutely supply constrained. But yes, we are seeing demand obviously has exponentially increased for space for people to, to be able to, right now it's all about generative AI. That's what's driving a lot of the demand coming into the space. I think we've seen AI hype cycles. Well, the first paper on neural networks, I believe, dates back to 1943. And we've seen many cycles uh, for AI as well, where it's the next big thing, robots are going to take over the world, and then it kind of peters <laughs> off, and yeah. then it comes back. I think this time it does feel materially different than prior cycles. And, and I think the, the big difference is the way consumers are actually able to interact with AI in a meaningful way, which has not occurred in the past. So I'm not saying that this is the cycle that is here to stay, but it definitely feels different would be my perspective. I think one of the really fascinating things about how HUT has evolved as well, the company was named after HUT 8, which is the HUT number that Alan Turing worked in during World War II. He built out the bomb and ultimately helped to crack the code that allowed the winning of the war. And so that cryptography ultimately formed the basis on which blockchain and Bitcoin technology was built. The other thing that that is interesting though, Alan went on to write about AI and ultimately machines being able to be indistinguishable from humans. And he wrote that paper, I believe in 1950. So our company is named after the godfather of crypto and AI. And we're the unique public company that is, is existing and trying to lead in the convergence of these two worlds. I didn't know the history around the name, but I love that. That's such a great insider reference. One of the big criticisms that I think the industry at large gets is like is environmental in nature. And, you know, I think I'll summarize as being like, hey, this Bitcoin thing doesn't need to exist. So therefore, any amount of power consumed by Bitcoin is wasted power. And, you know, we're in an energy constrained world and we're in a situation with climate change where we should stop all unnecessary power consumption. When you and I first met, we we got into this discussion on, on this topic. So I know you get some strong opinions here. Build the case why what I just said, poor man's summary of the anti-Bitcoin mining argument doesn't make sense. And then I think your organization's also done some pretty exciting stuff specifically related to greening of the industry that we should also touch on. This is a big topic that I am very passionate about and could spend an hour on my soapbox on. So I'm going to try to not do that. I'll kind of break it into, into three categories. First of all, having a value-based conversation about compute workload, which is ultimately what that is. And 
the value of Bitcoin? Does Bitcoin deserve energy? That's a very dangerous argument to have. Are we then saying that all other workloads, we should debate on their value to society? There are a lot of very terrible workloads out there that have never debated their energy profile. So that is complicated. I would also say if you look at where we're seeing the highest level of Bitcoin adoption right now, it's in Argentina for obvious reasons. So if you're going to talk about values, you really have to talk to people who don't sit in a privileged position from being in me in Canada or those of us that, that are in the United States or Europe that have stable currencies and stable governments. Bitcoin solves a, a really serious problem that affects a large portion of the globe. And we've still got just under 2 billion people unbanked that Bitcoin is an answer for. So a challenging argument and one that I really don't think holds any water if you think about the the promise of Bitcoin and what it does that no other technology in the history of the world has been able to do from a store of value perspective and transfer of value perspective. When we get into the energy conversation, uh, I think it's really driven on people not understanding the industry or how it works. Uh, I think the easiest way for me to kind of describe a real life use case is our, our site in Medicine Hat. So our largest site in Canada is in Medicine Hat, Alberta. We've got 67 megawatts. Medicine Hat is an independent power authority in that the city also owns their own power generation. And when we set up our Bitcoin mining facility, we built it directly next to one of their cogen facilities. Now that facility what always was producing the same amount of power, but for the most part, that power would sit idle waiting for peak demand. It was always there to support the constituents, but it wasn't being monetized or put to productive use until we built the Bitcoin mine next to it. So what that did for the community as a whole, now that 67 megawatts of power is being utilized and monetized at all times. But when there's peak demand on the grid, we power off. So Bitcoin mines are built to power up and down based on the cost of electricity. Because if it's not economical for us to mine Bitcoin, we're not going to mine Bitcoin. We shut down and that always coincides with peak demand. So community at large gets to use the power when they need the power, but the power that's available is never being wasted. It's always being monetized and utilized and and going where it's most needed. That made us one of the largest sources of revenue, obviously for the power side of the community. We're one of the largest taxpayers for the community. We brought 30 skilled labor jobs into a community that really, really needs them without taking anything away from the community or the constituents. We are purely a net benefit. We almost operate like a battery in that we we kind of move up and down as, as required by the needs of the grid. Can I ask a question on this? Because I've heard the Bitcoin battery argument before, and I'm such a novice when it comes to understanding the energy industry. So I think the way it goes is power plants, hugely capital intensive to build, take years, if not decades, to construct a new power plant of, of any generation technology. Yep. And once it's built, you may not have, let's say that it, it has a 100 megawatt supply capacity, that 100 megawatts, you may not have demand for that most of the time. Exactly. You're only hitting that peak demand, maybe 10, 15% of the year on the very, yeah. very cold days, the very, very hot days, but it has to be available to support those days. Otherwise, and, and this idle. is where I, the power plant concept seems strange to me. Like if I was talking about in my house, you know, I would just turn things off and I 
would be consuming nothing. But in a power plant, it's not trivial to cut down the power Correct. generation capacity. And it's hard to scale up quickly to meet That's that right. peak demand when it comes. Exactly. So the operators want to run at full capacity Correct. all the time. That's right. But most of the time, they're just dumping that power into That's nothing. Right. That's absolutely right. I'm glad I'm not as clueless as I thought on this. Yeah, so you're suddenly yeah. there with your infrastructure to consume this. And and do you have a formal agreement with the power generator to say, okay, when you hit some point of consumption, we will start powering off machines and you kind of match their demand from other consumers in line? So most Bitcoin miners have exactly this relationship with their power provider and their local community. We, we see a lot of this in Texas and ERCOT where miners are helping to, to support grid stabilization during peak weather events and, and those kinds of things. It makes the most headlines. The mechanics of each contract are slightly different, but I would take it back to first principles, which is if there's a spike in demand for power, power prices naturally go up. And we naturally have to shut down when power prices go up because it's not it's no longer economical for us to mine. There's a price at which it no longer makes sense to have those miners running. And it's always going to coincide with peak grid demands. It's just how it's built. And is your pricing dynamic? Like I know my home energy bill is fairly static. Like I'm not seeing changes in price throughout the billing period of a month, but I assume you're a wholesale consumer, not a not a retail consumer. So your billing probably works a little different. Each miner's PPAs are, are slightly different. Some have fixed components, variable components. They're, again, no PPA is created exactly equal. But the other thing that I think is so exciting and not talked about very often in our space is because a miner's number one operating expense is energy, we're constantly on a mission to find lowest cost energy solutions. So one of the most exciting things happening in the space over the last couple of years have been miners that are going in and using flare gas directly in oil and gas fields, capturing flare gas, using that to mine Bitcoin right at the site, which means that that carbon isn't being flared off or emitted into the environment. So the beautiful thing about a Bitcoin mine, you can really set it up anywhere there's an energy source. It does not need to be connected to the grid. And transmission and distribution's always been the biggest challenge for these stranded negative energy assets, which Bitcoin solves for. Again, captures the flare gas, uses that to mine, makes sure that carbon doesn't go into the atmosphere. When that flaring site runs out of gas, the rigs can literally just pick up and, and move to the, to the next flare site. They are broadly portable. The other great area of innovation is in waste methane. So we're seeing miners set up next to landfill sites, which have a similar problem. So you can use waste methane to create energy, but the landfills generally aren't able to dump that energy into the grid. So they, they don't have an off taker for it. Whereas if you set up a mining facility up next to a landfill, you can actually use that waste methane to power the mine and keep that methane out of the atmosphere. And all of this is happening directly by the industry. The industry is coming up with this innovation. The industry is funding it. We're not dependent on government programs or government subsidies. This is all private sector driven, which is an entirely net benefit to the environment. It's a net benefit to have less gas being flared. It's a net benefit to have less methane going into the atmosphere. And Bitcoin miners are the only off-taker right now that can set up in all of these remote locations. What does it look like when you set up next to a landfill or a natural gas drilling site? Is it like a trailer full of racks of servers? 
Yeah, they're generally on skids on trailers. Most yeah. Bitcoin mines are set up in containers. Picture like a shipping container. Generally, they're between one megawatt and two and a half megawatts per container. And you can put those on, on flatbeds and drive them around. I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that. but And then from an industry perspective, like wherever we can, one of the things that has driven a lot in ERCOT in West Texas, there was a huge boom in renewable projects going on out there. Solar farms, wind farms, those are intermittent power sources. And many of them ended up being constructed in areas where there wasn't actually enough load demand to support the project. So we've seen a number of Bitcoin miners set up directly next to wind farms, solar farms, and they're able to consume that energy energy when it's available, and then otherwise they're using grid energy. So just a ton of great stories coming out of innovation in this space. In fact, KPMG wrote and published an article a few weeks ago talking about the benefits of Bitcoin mining to the renewables transition, which is the best thing that our industry could hope for, to now have credible third parties that under, have done the work, that understand the space, that understand the incredible potential that Bitcoin miners have to help more rapidly and sustainably drive um, and help fund the renewable energy transition is incredible. So I, I expect we'll see a lot more of that research uh, start to come out in the next six to 12 months. Awesome. We'll link to that article in the show notes so that people can go and read it themselves. And I mean, you, this is where I wanted to go with the conversation is like, what's your perspective on getting the industry to carbon neutrality or potentially all sourced green energy? Like, I don't know if the economics makes sense today to do something like that. And obviously, you're not going to catapult the business into bankruptcy. So like, right. is there a transition plan on which you kind of foresee this happening where you're 100% sourced from green energy? energy? Is it possible to look that far into the future? It's not possible to look that far into the future, for sure. Yeah. Where we use natural gas, we've established a program to start offsetting that natural gas consumption to ultimately get to a carbon neutral state. We came together as an industry over two years ago and formed the Bitcoin Mining Council. That council publishes research on a regular basis and, and has been able to demonstrate the majority of, of the industry uses renewables. I think it's up to over 58% of, of Bitcoin mining uses renewable wow. sources today. That's research that, that will continue. We do see some miners in the U.S. using nuclear as a source, which is obviously emission-free. I think I think we're going to see a, a lot more nuclear in our future. And then and one of the things we, we are challenged with is how do you really capture the benefit of miners converting flare? So it's almost using flare to power. Flare isn't a renewable source, but you're actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere. So, th so that's something that I don't think has been fully standardized or, or thought through. And the, and the same would be true with waste methane. You're still burning it. So there's still some carbon emission, but it, I'm guessing the argument is that it's quite a bit lower than just releasing the methane or releasing the flare directly into the environment. Yeah, materially lower. That's interesting. We'll see if we can find a reference of somebody that's done some research on this and include it in the show notes too. Yeah, Dennis Porter's done some great research. Uh, Daniel Batten's done some great research. So luckily, there's increasingly bodies of good research out there. I'm curious as you look to the future, I, you know, you've obviously got a great diversification strategy for the business. Like what comes next? Uh, you've got the merger, obviously, that, that's in the near future, but I imagine you're you're thinking a few steps ahead. Where do you go after that? Yeah, I'm, I'm always trying to think a few steps ahead. HUD's got such a great track record of kind of being where the puck's going. And so I put a lot of pressure on myself to keep that track record alive. And our focus is getting to the other side of, of this transaction successfully this fall. But 
we'll certainly continue to, to push the envelope when it comes to driving and leading innovation in this space. And really, I spent a lot of time thinking about how these worlds come together. I think um, when we think about what is AI, really, AI is scalable everything. There's, there's no limit to where AI could ultimately go. But what AI lacks is truth, hard-coded truth. It lacks provenance. It lacks identity. And that's, that's what, what blockchain technology can really provide. It's really scalable truth at the end of the day. So I think these worlds, in order for them to both reach their maximum potential, they, they need to work together. That's the intersection that, that's going to get the most innovation and attention over the next few years. The service level discussion there on the AI meets blockchain, I haven't seen people going deep on it. So it's interesting for you to bring that up, but I think you're incredibly well positioned to lead these two things together into the future. So Jamie, this was a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for joining us and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. <laughs> Thanks again for having me and sorry for uh, making the record of the most difficult interview to schedule. <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely worth it. Thanks again. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team has been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, revamped YouTube. You can sign up for the LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, follow us on Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Last thing before you go, on September 26th, the United States Department of Treasury sanctioned 10 individuals involved in illegal fentanyl, cocaine, and methamphetamine trafficking into the United States on behalf of Mexico's Sinaloa cartel. With this coordinated effort by law enforcement in the US, Mexico, and Colombia, it shows a consistent attempt to stop fentanyl and other illicit drugs that cause untold harm to United States citizens. To take a look at the movement of drug priest proceeds via Ethereum and the names of the sanctioned individuals, head down to the show notes to read the complete blog.